This is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. Season two of the Under Pressure Outdoors podcast. Good to be here. Starting it out right, talking about the Texas Sandhill Crane Hunt. Son. But before we get too far into that, yeah. Hats came and hats went. They gone. With a quickness. Uh, so we are gonna get some more hats. Hopefully tomorrow. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta talk with the guy a lot. I want to figure out uh, color options. We didn't have a ton of color options with that first batch. I want to change that with the second one. Looking to get some beanies and sun visors as well. I'm a sun visor guy when it starts to get hot outside. Oh, me too, definitely, definitely. But we didn't have a lot of hats the first go around either. No, oh, we had 37. Which, which is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and they sold out quick. And not only are the hats, you get the hats now, you've also got Under Pressure Outdoors, the group, on Facebook. Which has been growing. There's people posting to it now. If you're listening, you're on the group, you're more than welcome to post questions, make other posts to it, we'll react. We'll jump in there. I know I've seen people commenting on other people's, the people that have made posts what we want you see something funny you're more than welcome to share it to the group it doesn't necessarily have to be outdoors related yeah you know that's that's for our listeners of the show to interact with each other and to interact with us um you know we, we put up a poll there the other day about what other merchandise you guys would like to see and i was just joking when i said i would make a calendar with us on it but there's actually some people that uh, want a calendar which is kind of scary <laughs> yeah somebody <laughs> actually wants to look at me uh, I'd be afraid to write stuff on the months that I'm on <laughs> oh, we better make it out of something that's not very flammable so it doesn't just spontaneously combust yeah but we're going to get some more merchandise out there for you guys to support the podcast and, and wear that new logo, which is really cool. Yeah, we've had a great reaction to that new logo. I like it. I like it a lot. I was excited about it when we first got it back from the graphic designer. Yeah, it's cool. Really cool logo, which are, is now you know the cover art and stuff for um, the podcast. So you guys will have noticed if you're subscribed to the podcast that whoa that picture changed to the new logo from the old logo so maybe you know later on down the line we can go back uh do a throwback to the old logo if that's something you guys are interested in but uh right now we're sticking with the new stuff the new hotness i've always but, been hot but yeah 
So tell us, tell us about that, that crane hunt in Texas. What are we going to hear about on this podcast? God, man. You know, I think we, we talked a lot in, uh, on the podcast. Um, we talk, I mean, we talked about the hunt, but I think we talked a lot about the, the experiences of the, of the hunt itself, you know, like not necessarily of the hunt itself, but the whole trip. Cause you know, I, I went to Texas having only known, uh, Jim from BHA was the only person I knew going to Texas. Right. Um, but I gained a, a great relationship there with all the other, I think there was four other guys. Yeah. Four other guys that I didn't know. And, uh, gained a great relationship with those guys spending all the time that I did with them and then we had uh, one of the gentlemen was a complete novice to it he's the other one that talks with me and Jim in the podcast and uh, complete novice to, to hunting in general he had been on one dove hunt with Jim prior to that and didn't even get to shoot his gun on the dove hunt Man. and he talks a lot about I don't think he doesn't talk a whole lot but he talks about his experiences coming into it as a new hunter right you know because it's it people think you know hunting that you go there to hunt but there's so much more to hunting especially when you go on a trip like that with people uh the camaraderie it, to me is almost there's more there's more to it in the camaraderie to me than there is in the hunt itself right and we talk a lot about that in the podcast I think Jim even said something about some recipes for some Ooh. stuff, yeah. And we talked about how uh, we ourselves, the guides offered to clean, but we ourselves took the birds back and cleaned them ourselves because we got a lot more out of the birds that way. A uh, guide service is gonna breast it and give the breast to you. We got breasts off the cranes, we got breasts, leg. well, I guess we did off everything. We breasts, legs, cranes we got necks off of. Um, and then we get hearts, gizzards, and livers as well. So, hear a lot about all that. But it was a blast. Gosh, I can't stop thinking about going back. And Jim's already made uh, Sandhill Crane Liver Pate. Yeah. Which, uh, there's a lot of stuff you just don't think about using, especially on a bear. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Who, who would have ever thought to take the liver out of your duck? Stuff like I that. I honestly you're, never would have. Yeah, you're, you're missing out on some good stuff. I'm not a big liver fan. I'll try the liver pate. Really what gets me is not so much, I don't think, the liver. I'm a consistency person. So the consistency of liver. Yeah. It's kind but of it's gross. not. It doesn't really have that consistency in a It doesn't pate. in a pate it, it, because it's just ground up. Spread. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll give it a shot. Yeah, I'd be excited to make some. I probably should have made it already. But we haven't even tried any of that crane breast yet. No, man, I've been looking for the opportunity to do it. I don't want to thaw it out and just eat it myself. I want. All you got to do is say, "Hey, Will, Briar, Matt, come on." Yeah, that's we'll going to be most of my breast right there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we'll get after them crane breasts with you, I'm sure. Yeah. Them goose, I'm excited for that goose too. We did the goose, uh, the breasts are skin on. 
Oh yeah. Skin on one side. There you go. There is only skin on one side though. I know, but I'm saying like, <laughs> you know, it's not like a full, full goose where you would have the skin all the way around it if you were to pluck a whole entire right. goose. So were y'all out there in the uh, parking lot of the hotel just going to town? Oh yeah, absolutely. We we were kind of in uh, we were kind of behind the dumpster and the parking lot parking space next to the dumpster, but there was most definitely a very 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 large amount of feathers everywhere. <laughs> we walked into the walked into the hotel room one day because I brought all those heads back and uh, to do the euros. We're gonna have a bunch of those too. I have more than we can handle, so I might end up selling some of those too if people want them. You know, what I think we should do. I think we should give them away. Yeah, we should give some of them away. Yeah, we. I think we have 18 crane heads. Holy cow! Yeah, a fair amount of goose heads. Uh, I looked up the goose head. The goose heads, we they can look cool, but uh, we got some. I did some black belly whistler euros a while back and they they turned out good i don't have any of them anymore mine got unfortunately. broke i gave them away yeah mine got broken so yeah but we got some wood duck heads we're doing this year we Two. got some merganser heads yeah i might just hang a teal head. yeah we do have, forgot about the teal do we have oh we have one teal i think is that it yeah because we only I took two to. I took a drake and a, a hand amount. I think we only cleaned one teal. So we got one green wing teal head. A couple of merganser heads. Cranes, geese, wood ducks. Yeah. We got a bunch. Inventory. Yeah. We got work. We got work to do. Is what we got. But yeah. So we were back to what I was saying we were walking into the the hotel and we had bags I mean bags of just raw meat from everything we had cleaned and the little cleaning lady's like she saw my bag of heads because the meat was in the cooler it was no like a little rolly cooler just slapped full of meat and uh, rolling it in there and she sees the heads and she gives me a weird look she's like are those bird heads and I was like, yeah. She's like, why? And then so there was like a running joke every time we, we told her what we were doing and everything. There was a running joke every time we'd go out and we'd run past her. She'd be like, you're not going to shoot more of those birds, are you? <laughs> uh. It was kind of fun, though, too, because, like, you know, our trip started out during the week. And, uh... As a weekend neared, the hotel filled up a little more. Yeah. And then you're like walking in from the hunt, dressed in camo. Some of the guys were like carrying their shotguns in. In a case, I'm just walking through the front door of the hotel with a shotgun in my hand. <laughs> like, <laughs> people are like watching you as you walk past. Like what? Is you're like it's Texas. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. You get in the elevator with people and they're like looking at you funny. It's all right though. It's Texas. Yeah. It's Texas. I was telling Dad, I don't know if I told you, we went one morning after, I think it was after our first goose hunt, we went to a barbecue restaurant. And it was kind of like, I don't know how many people listen to the podcast know what Four Rivers is, but it was kind of like Four Rivers, but better. Which but Four Rivers is an awesome barbecue place down here in Florida. Yeah. 
and uh, you know prior to the hunt I hadn't really well even lately at all I don't really drink I have one or two every now and then but man that first night we just all got sitting around and we were having beers and time got lost and just had I had a few too many beers so the morning of that goose hunt I was hung over like bad and it was nice because I'm like laying in the blonde I'm like oh yes my head and then geese had come in and, blah, 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 and then my head just bricking throbbing from everybody shooting but so we walk into the uh, barbecue restaurant and there's a big watering trough and uh, it says free beer if you're over 21 I was like nice walk over there slap full of Pabst Blue Ribbon <laughs> I said this is Texas now <laughs> if this ain't some Texas stuff it was fun though gosh I can't wait to go back man I so you recorded the podcast going down the road to the airport, so you're going to hear some uh, crazy driver noises. Yeah. <laughs> the rumble strips on the side of the road. Yeah. Uh, any honking of horns and yelling at people? Uh, maybe a little bit of honking horn. We were, I mean, yeah. There was, there was some horn honking, but people just... It was crazy because we were like driving literally middle of nowhere and there's a super long line of traffic. The road's straight. You can see for miles. And there's a dang RV going super slow. Huh. But people weren't passing him. So he just whomp, pulled out and whomp, railed, past, <laughs> railed past everybody. Well, hey, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. So you've been warned. The audio is a little rough on this one, uh, but it's going to get better here in a few weeks. So we've got some new uh, audio interface stuff coming in and some nice new mics, and we're working on building a studio so you don't hear idiots like that guy behind us with the loud exhaust right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hope I'm that cool one day. But yeah. <clears throat> so you don't hear that stuff. Uh, and so about episode 50 right. we are here with jim and Place adam 52 53 and we are headed back to Dallas about episode 55 from our the audio quality and crane in texas and this was so. adam is this your first time yeah. this was my Waterfowl first this was my first hunt that uh actually got yeah. to shoot that'll be nice yeah awesome. ever Awesome. All right, how was that go. for you? Let's yeah. roll that beautiful bean footage. It was a lot of fun. It was uh, exhilarating. Uh, seeing, having the first time to pop up from a blind and uh, knock some birds out of the sky and go through the whole process of putting out the uh, decoys to uh, setting up a blind and calling them in and watching them come down and responding to the call and then popping up and being able to knock them out of the sky and then take them back and process it and clean them and bag them and tag them and yeah that was that was a lot other. for uh <laughs> i mean that was my first time ever hunting out of like a, a layout line like that that was uh that's kind of a a real different experience because you you don't get quite the sight that you do hunting out of like a boat or something or what i'm used to hunting out of that picking all the tumbleweeds out of your teeth afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you 
having like having watched movies and stuff, you're like, oh, cool tumbleweed, and then you get out there and you're like tumbleweed, and you realize that it's just like a massive briar bush that's blown across the plains with thorns. Yeah. Yeah. I'd uh, I'd love to see one of these windmills just take out a bird. You still recording? Yeah. Oh, so now yeah, it's a mean, random conversation about yeah. windmills no, halfway through Central Texas. I mean, but, uh, no, that was cool. I mean, I've never gone that far into processing. Because, you know, like, with ducks, I, if I kill a smaller duck, I'm not necessarily trying to get in the legs and stuff. I, there's not as much meat on the legs of a smaller duck. So going that deep into processing was actually... Yeah, I sometimes think that when people are looking at ducks and they look at the legs versus the breasts, um, we, we're just not wired to think that way. Yet when you go out and say you're pursuing small game and you knock down a squirrel, you're looking to grab the back legs off of that squirrel probably is the biggest payload of meat. Yeah. And when you compare the leg of a duck versus the leg of the squirrel, they're about the same size. Um, I just... As a hunter, I'm just one of those guys that likes to harvest everything I possibly can out of the, out of whatever I'm pursuing, and I find that a lot of the same cooking techniques can be used for all that stuff. Uh, a lot of times, you, you braise. I like to braise meat, braise squirrel legs, braise duck legs, braise goose legs, and I find that you can use any one of those uh, species in the same recipe and just get absolutely fantastic results. So, yeah. but I've always enjoyed like cooking, but a lot of the stuff that you've talked about this weekend is I've gained a lot of knowledge as to how much of that animal you can use to make one dish, like using the liver and stuff to make like the, the bra to be able to braise it and all that kind of stuff. Or like, what was it? The recipe you sent us for squirrel. Oh, the, the cotillion braised squirrel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's actually a place where you can actually use some livers, like squirrel livers, or you might choose to use even a duck liver. Um, so what's interesting is where most, the cotillion braised squirrel, or cotillion braised duck, or cotillion braised goose, whatever you want to do, what thickens it instead of flour like most traditional stews is you toast some hazelnuts, or you toast some almonds, you soften up some garlic to where it's just starting to get golden and soft, um, and you take those, you, you take your your toasted almonds, um, some browned livers, actually give them a little time in the pan just to brown them up a little bit. Take your softened garlic and some fresh parsley or herbs, and either in a pestle, like a mortar and pestle, you can grind it up, or in a food processor, just pulse that into a paste, add a little bit of water to it, and when you're braising down your, your meat inside your liquid and your stock and your tomatoes, you add that for a thickener, and what it does to your stew is just adds an entirely new level of complexity and taste. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, I'll be happy to post that recipe out for your listeners, or you can put it in show notes if you want. Absolutely, yeah. Jim, did you say uh, squirrel liver? Yes. What is that, the size of a chickpea? I mean, what's the, uh, I've never even thought that you'd be able to get that out of the animal. I would not uh, want to have to make a living on squirrel liver. It's There's not much there. And when you're talking about uh, a dish like that, something like using an entire squirrel liver, there's no problem. 
I mean, there's just not that much there. You're going to throw several in a in a pan and, and, and brown them real quick. It only takes a couple seconds. How big is a squirrel liver? The size of a nickel. Oh, okay. So it is. It's not too bad. No, no. But where you you know those those goose livers we pulled out are every bit of the size yeah, of a silver the, dollar. Oh those yeah, are, those were those I are mean, beautiful. Those I'll crane livers do, were massive too. Yeah, I'll probably do pate with those. Um, I've I've made pate before out of uh, deer liver. Uh, it's pretty deer liver is pretty strong, so I'm really looking forward to actually trying to do it with the crane livers this year. I've been saying I'm going to do it for years, and I've, I've never done it, so this will be a year first for me. I've heard a lot about uh, just like the flavors of like. I know it, it with duck fat, but you were talking about like goose fat, just has an amazing flavor to it. Yeah, so any of those, I think any of those waterfowl that aren't making a living out in the salt marsh, uh, when you when you render them, you just get that. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with goose fat or, or any duck fat, but you just get that really clean, just wonderful. <laughs> clear fat that is just fantastic to to brown median and things like that so every time I was taking some of the fat out of the goose like I took the one goose and um, oh my goodness what <laughs> hello plucked it I couldn't think of the word pluck yeah. didn't want to get that wrong word or that word wrong <laughs> when I plucked it and then was removing the uh, the, the innards you know, it was late last night, and I was taking out this from the hindquarters, just handfuls of this fat. That oh, man, I, I was, I was, I probably should have reserved it because I was regretting throwing it away, knowing that if I, had, if I had just reserved that down, that that would have made some fantastic cooking material. And although we did a really good job of taking an awful lot, almost of, of almost all the birds that we took, that just if unless it was too shot up, man, when you it really comes down to just getting to be cooler space. How much? How much can you bring home? Because yeah. we're, we're dealing with it now. I had to get yet another cooler and trying to check all the bags and, and keep the weight underneath 50 pounds. So unfortunately, in this case, a lot of that goose fat um, didn't make the trip home with us. However, we did leave the skin on our goose breasts. Uh, so that when we make things like pastrami or whatever else we cook, we should get some of that wonderful rendering that'll also keep the breasts nice and moist during the time in the smoker for make pastrami or whatever else we choose to do with it. So it'll work out. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting some of these recipes from you and and diving into all these different parts of you know parts that your average person wouldn't have harvested out of these birds that we got. I hope you enjoy them. You know, and uh, I don't think your audience will care or not, but I, I am by no means a chef. I'm just a guy that real enjoys hunting um, and I don't want to get too down the rabbit hole on the subject but you work so hard to go out and get the animal why not use all of it if Absolutely. You can? and I don't I don't have guilt I don't want to make that association but I don't know I just don't like to waste anything so I, you can it's almost all edible <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the, admittedly, some things need a little bit more preparation, but uh, it, and it was it was a lot of work, but it feels really good.
to harvest that animal and then come back to the hotel and just harvest everything that we can out of it knowing that we're you know take gonna put every bit of that to use i agree and what's what's really cool earlier in the podcast we talked about that this is adam's i think second time hunting yeah um, we met through a common friend and i convinced him to come out to a backcountry hunters and anglers event that was out at the tenor rock dove field in lakeland florida during opening day man what a champ he came out we actually camped out the night before because it's a it's a quota hunt and if you're not the first 25 people in you don't get in yeah. we were expecting great things and just for reasons beyond me the birds just didn't fly so he came out camped out with us stood out there in that dove field all day to come back with a sunburn but then was still trooper enough to you know pool resources with us fly into dallas then drive five hours out to lubbock texas and uh and knock things down so to be able to hopefully take a, a relatively new hunter and then have him enthusiastic enthusiastically dive into the process of taking the legs taking the necks off of the sandhill cranes um and then harvesting things like the the gizzard the heart yeah. the livers I'm, I'm happy to hopefully instill that tradition in him and then of course now that you've got all those goodies all those wobbly bits what do you do with them because they are intimidating and it, it took me several attempts before i was able to turn a lot of that stuff into food that was anything more than just consumable yeah. where you know admittedly it wasn't necessarily enjoyable but i've i've played around with things and started out with recipes for more traditional you know uh calf livers or, or pig livers and just work that into wild game livers and adjusted ingredients to, to how I like it. And I'd encourage anybody, if they want to take my recipes and tell me, well, heck, you didn't put enough salt in it. You didn't put enough cayenne pepper in it. Man, I've got it dialed in for me. If you like it spicier, throw more stuff in it. I had a buddy of mine take up my Braunschweiger recipe I used for venison, venison Braunschweiger the other day. He likes everything spicy. I mean, a guy puts jalapeno in his, in his oatmeal. Jeez. And of course he took his Braunschweiger <laughs> yeah. He was throwing cayenne pepper in it and red pepper flakes. <laughs> Man, it would, to each his own. That's not a traditional German recipe, but it's as long as people it. are enjoying it, it's great. Yeah. Whatever's going to get you to, to consume what you've created. Yeah. That's the goal. And then I think the, just the sheer... I don't know, there's almost a whole shock to this trip for me because I've been places, but I've never been anywhere like... East Texas where it's literally you can just see as far as the eye can see I mean as far as you can see there's it's just flatland crop windmills you might get a house here or there but it's crazy and then like that afternoon hunt where we hunted and there was just thousands of cranes in the air above that roost that was just unreal that almost had me I I, I don't even I don't even know how to explain it was it was crazy. Yes. I see that. How about when that uh, goose pond bubbled uh, when yeah. we were yesterday morning? When the roost bubbled? Oh, my gosh. I mean, there must have been 3,000 goose that popped up and just went on a run. Yeah, when we get into the big flocks, and it's, it's really unfortunate that it's been warm. So a lot of the birds that will be in Texas probably this week, next week, the following week aren't quite here yet. So the, the numbers that we saw were, were, by most people's thought process, pretty remarkable. 
but believe it or not, fellas, by West Texas standards, what we saw this week was was a was just a fraction of what normally comes in. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you that watching, we got an opportunity because unfortunately it was clear and warm and calm. Yeah. We we did get the ability to watch the sandhill cranes with these six foot wingspans using the thermals, the, the natural thermals that were coming off the ground as the as the air was cooling and the sun was going down and the and the ground was, was the air the lower air yeah. was starting to rise in the into the into the air. How they use those to to, to, to then just, attain height. They weren't even flapping their wings was the crazy thing. Like nope. just they just circling they up. looked like they were coming in nice and low and then they hit that thermal and just started circling and just literally got so high into the air that you couldn't see them anymore. Yeah, which sucked for us because yeah. we could hear them and you could see them way the hell up there. But otherwise, <laughs> it sucked. But just experience-wise, you're like, wow, that's. Yeah, but we had that one good morning, man. We got that six-man limited cranes. Can't really complain about that. That's can't call the hunt a failure. We we no. went home with a you know, basically a limited geese and a limited cranes. Though we were hoping to go home with three limits of each. Mm-hmm. It was still a good good experience. It was, even this drive home is just breathtaking. Or drive back to Dallas. I know on the way in it was all dark and couldn't really see anything. I was really looking forward to this drive home. It is interesting. And Earlier we were chatting in the car. As you know, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for public land. Um, and I think it's one of the things that we just, if, as a country, as a nation, and certainly the state of Florida, it's something that we have to have to be able to maintain our traditions because if we don't, we'll wind up with a European hunting model. Only the wealthy and affluent will be able to hunt. Yeah. But what's interesting is I, I still love hunting Texas. and <laughs> Less than 2% of Texas's land is public. And I would never want other states to necessarily adopt this model. But somehow the history of Texas, these massive land tracks that they have, relatively inexpensive access it's just easy to get yes you're often paying or you have to know a buddy but all so many people hunt in texas and it's not real expensive yeah it just seems to work here but i don't think i really don't think it would work anywhere else no it absolutely definitely wouldn't work in florida no no it's (laughs) too too crowded the land tracks are too small so uh yeah texas is my exception i love hunting texas even though there's not a lot of public land that was one thing I was really looking forward to coming to Texas was just seeing these like, cause you, you know, you think of Texas and you know like branches, but you don't genuinely understand like how massive these ranches are like that, uh, the 4-6 ranch that we drove through. You don't understand how massive it is till you drive and you've been driving through one ranch for <laughs> 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, two, 250,000 acre spreads. Yeah. yeah. It's insane to think that people own And the type of fencing is the only way you identify it. It's, you know, it's what breaks them up. Yeah, I'm sure there's a, a certain natural cost to that because they knock down a lot of the mesquite. But on the other hand, yeah, they do a fantastic job of maintaining the land. Uh, the quail habitat out here, quail habitat out here is, is, is fantastic. Certainly the geese and the cranes have benefited from it. Um, doves. I mean, it's a bird hunter's paradise. Absolutely. And again, I love all that, the domestic species. Of course, on the other hand, it's also a state where you can run around and 
you know, run into an outed or a or a, or, or a seeky deer in places that they're just not supposed to be. So at least I got this love love hate relationship with Texas, but I would definitely say that I I love it more than more than it. My love for it exceeds whatever things detract. Yeah. So it seems like Texas really has a lot to offer for for all wildlife because I even talked to some of the guides, and I know like we had the one uh, Trevor that follows the geese follows snow geese around or follows geese around period um, as their season goes but then you talk to some of the other ones like uh, man, what was our guy's name the first morning Lee Lee. I talked to that's Lee what he does like outside of bird season and he said that he guides like deer hunts yep no man out here those guys with with uh, with crooked crooked wing outfitters here out of Lubbock they're all in. Um, it's an interesting having been with them now several years, watching these young men, a lot of whom were in college out of Texas Tech, uh, go from guys guys that were building a guide business because they just loved being in the outdoors and they had to support themselves through school, largely turn into genuine businessmen, uh, providing a really tight operation. Uh, that, that that was neat. Um, I, I don't know if I can really necessarily say we're, we're we're friends because I don't I don't call them up and send them Christmas cards. Yeah. But uh, it's always a warm reception whenever we come back. And uh, but then they also employ these other guys who are often just a little bit younger, uh, like our 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 guide last night, um, Trevor. Trevor, who's these, these journeyman guides, man. They. They'll start out hunting up in Canada and follow the migration and all the way down south and then in the spring follow the migration all the way back, back through the Dakotas into Canada again. Yeah. Then take the summers off to regas and fish or get whatever they gotta get done and start the whole cycle yeah. over again. It's an it's just, I think a young single man's lifestyle, but yeah. man, I wish I knew about it when I was their age. They're just ate up with it, because it was like Ethel was the one we talked to that that follows the snow geese like up through Texas after the season's over and uses his own money like in the spring uses his own money and crap to just follow those birds because he's just so ate up with it that even after guiding all season there and you know where we're at for the snow goose and the cranes and stuff all he wants to do when he finished is go chase birds himself yeah talk about your target market for the under pressure podcast Here's a young fella, basically lives out of his pickup truck, um, pays attention, starts out in East Texas, watching the birds, scouting the birds, figuring out where the flocks are feeding in the morning. Nice fella, just politely goes up, knocks on doors and says, would you mind if I knock down a few snow geese? And by and large, he just gets the yes. Occasionally there has to be a favor exchanged or maybe a little cash, but that guy's, that guy's running snow geese for several weeks in the spring. Yeah. And, it's not and, like they make a ton of money on it either. They don't make a ton of money doing the guiding themselves. So it's like we're all about doing it on a budget. These guys, these guys do that stuff on a budget themselves too when they go to their personal time to do it. It sounds like the biggest uh, inhibitor for a lot of us to be able to do that is, is just having the time. You know, how many of us can take... How many of us can take say that last couple weeks of February 
drive out to East Texas with some binoculars, some cold weather hunting gear, and, and where did he get the trailer? Deeks, right? I mean, yeah. he was saying he's got like 25, he's 2,500 Deeks strong, right? Uh, I'm sure a lot of them are dive bomber Deeks where they're the, the flat boards and they socks. So that's somewhat inexpensive. But man, you got to have a horse trailer full of Deeks. So how many of us could take a couple <laughs> weeks, drive out here purely on spec with a set of binoculars and a smile and say, you know, a couple of cases of ammunition say we're going to go out and knock down snow geese. Yeah. But you can if you've got the time and the willingness to do it. Again, pull your resources. I think that's something that probably just about anybody could do. They just need to do a little bit of planning in advance and, uh, and be willing to take the risk and not get down on the days where you, you don't get a chance to hunt or, you, you know, they were in the field and the next day you went out there and they just weren't. We saw that. Oh, you yeah. walk through a field and see feathers and you know, scat, scat everywhere, and then nothing <laughs> in the evening. Yeah. You know, they're fickle, they're birds. And then the morning we wake up to leave is just the most beautiful, perfect weather for, for what we were trying to get for the rest of the week, or what, when we were here. Oh. That's just how hunting goes. Yeah, if we were hunting, if that weather front, I'm confident if the weather front that we're driving through now on the way back to the airport if that had come through on Wednesday, we'd have been in the chips, man. We'd have, we'd have been, we'd have been running back buying more ammunition. Yeah. But, eh, you know, next year I've had it out here where we've hunted in two feet of snow, and between the snow geese and the and the Canadas, you know, knocked down, you know, taking all five Canadas, three or four snow geese, and been packed up and out of the field by nine o'clock in the morning, um, and then had other days where, like this time, we hunted till eleven just to grind out a limit of cranes or you know or, or go home with a with a modest limit of geese but we didn't get we didn't get skunked in any of our hunts i mean the oh, worst yeah. one was we managed to goose. knock down one goose during yeah. a sand-up crane hunt but it's better than a donut absolutely oh my gosh look at all the massive massive deer in that little high fence back there oh but yeah high fence plenty yeah. of that out here yeah yeah uh, that was amazing too, seeing the uh, different animals, uh, different birds mixing together out there, uh, seeing how they're, you can truly see the migration and how they come across here. And, uh, you know, they, they get mixed up with each other and they form their uh, little pet flying patterns and uh, it, Crane's lost his buddy back uh, at the last pond and winds up with a flock of geese and uh, <laughs> swinging in, catching their air streams. And, drafting off them. It was a little NASCAR race up there. It was pretty neat to see. Yeah, it's crazy how they can't, like, there's, they, like we were talking about with Trevor last night, how they just detect that pressure, or whatever, and they start to move, but they can still manage to get lost, like that, that Pacific branch that we shot. Or that, who, uh, was it Webb that shot it? It, it was either me, Webb, or Roman, and, uh, it just seemed to be in a good position, like, most likely it was Webb. But that, you know, that group of five came in, landed the deeks, and then jumped up, and they just jumped right up in front of us. They didn't stand a chance. I would say that branch came right towards you guys, because it was like right next to somebody when he picked it up. Yeah, the Pacific Brant, B-R-A-N-T. Oh, Brant. It's, uh, it's all right. Okay. It's uh, a blackbird, kind of ugly, saltwater bird. Um, I got to admit, when Will asked if he could have that for the lodge <clears throat> and trade us out a goose, Still never got traded out our goose. Oh, that's all right, man. <laughs> yeah. I think that was just, we didn't yeah, need it. Yeah, absolutely. But I was like, that's a Pacific saltwater bird. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really cool to have mounted in my house. 
Yeah. Oh, for the mount would be awesome, but I was thinking for the heat quality, like, have to keep that one separate and probably yeah. run it through the brine before you try to eat it. I just imagine that it would taste you know, like a organza or something like that, where if you don't brine it out pretty good, you might catch a little bit of the, the bait bucket. Yeah. But it was, I mean, even though we didn't have limits, just the camaraderie that we all gained, I mean, through the dinners or like, you know, cleaning the birds or just hanging out after the hunts, during the hunts, the camaraderie that you gain on hunting trips in general is insane. As I had somebody ask me, they were like, you're just going to go on a hunt with a bunch of people you don't know? I'm like, dude, I mean, honestly, if you get some guys that enjoy that stuff together, you're auto- everybody's automatically going to connect. So I've run a number of these kind of events. I love doing it. I love putting them together. I mean, I don't I don't get any compensation. For, a lot of times I end up subsidizing some of these things, but that's what it's all about is using the hunting because there's not enough of us. Getting people out in the field for that R3 experience, you know, to recruit, retain, reactivate a bunch of guns to go off or coil but um, get that going. But man, the camaraderie, um, that's one of the reasons, unfortunately, we don't have some of the guys in the podcast. We got so busy yeah, just in the process of both hunting, preparing to hunt, um, coming back and, and butchering the game, cleaning the guns because that West Texas red clay gets into everything. Oof. And then by the time you get some dinner, we're all knackered, man. We're, yeah. boom, we're down again. And, yeah. the and, it's goes off. and it's 11 o'clock at night, and we're up at 4.30 every day. Yeah, yeah, 4.45. That's something if we do this trip again next year, we uh, we really got to build in some time to get you know everybody's opinion. Uh, because I think that you'll – we had guys from South Carolina and Florida, most, many of whom had never met each other before. But everybody seemed to know somebody. Yeah. But, man, by the end of that three days, it's like you've been knowing each other for years. And uh, just a fantastic experience. It's awesome to be able to build relationships like that with people. That's just one thing I love about the outdoors in general is that you can run into people that you've never known before. And, you know, especially like you said on trips like this where you really, you spend so much time together. You just, that that person's almost like a brother to you by the time you leave. Yeah, I I would, I I don't know it's one of the things I don't usually talk about, but how much I cherish the friendships and the relationships that I have with people that I've met through hunting. And sometimes those, that relationship really is around hunting just because of distance or time, because we're all trying to make a living too. Yeah. That the only time you really get to spend that real quality time is on the hunting trip. But it was amazing. Some of the things that we'll get into talking about, some of the deep subjects, like, <laughs> you know, uh, founding of the country and constitutional uh, nuance. I mean, this time, you want to talk about an eclectic group of dudes. So we got um, we got financial planners. We got lawyers. We got uh, guys that do insurance. We got guys that are out there running road crews. Um, God, who am I missing? I just, you never know who's going to come out. Have guys that John's run- an engineer, he said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That guy goes out, man, he repairs... Bazillion dollar um, MRI, MRIs and things like that. Yeah. Yet y'all come together and once you're in the blind, you know, play a little Levon Helm, something like that, get the mood, you know, dip cans passing around and, <laughs> just, and it all just comes together. Yeah, you get, you get around after a, a uh, couple bottles of bourbon and a 
30 racks of bush light. <laughs> yeah, and to our credit, we actually bring a lot of that bush light home. Yeah, I guess yeah. credit or discredit, depending how you look to it. But um, it, it's a lot of fun. And I, I know guys were already talking about um, coming back next year or throwing together a, maybe a white goose hunt this spring. Um, that might be something you guys might want to promote. We can always... You know, put it together and say, hey, if you guys want to come out and try to experience something like that. Absolutely. We'll all go to, I'll go to Arkansas. That was just a, just to hear, yeah, all the, all the, like, rock-built buildings. Yeah, we're currently in Jonesboro, Texas, man. This is a beautiful town. Jax, it is. Jacksboro. Oh, Jacksboro. Jacksboro. I'm sorry. It's gorgeous. What's really cool about a lot of these, um, they've all got the limestone or sandstone buildings that were all built in the 1860s, and in some of these towns you'll find... Um, the courthouse and the sheriff's office were obviously built early, or the town, maybe not, maybe not necessarily the sh- uh, courthouse, either the courthouse or the city hall. The city, city hall. hall. And then you'll find <clears throat> walls built around them or fortifications. Then you realize that when a lot of these small towns were popping up, um, there were still hostilities between some of the settlers and the Native Americans or... You know, they they just come out of the Civil War, and, and some of the things that we take for granted now really weren't settled. But yeah. here they are, and, and it's weird when you look at the the population as Americans came into Texas. You see that, say, by 1920, when they were first starting to do a lot of these you know, censuses and stuff out here. I mean, censuses are older than that, but you'll have these populations of a town of 1,100, and here it is, 2020, 100 years later, and Population still 1100. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. it is really cool though. Like earlier, how we were kind of as we went from town to town because you know you got like 30 minutes to an hour sometimes between towns. Uh, how we get into each town, we just kind of research the, the history of that town. That's I've always been kind of a big history freak. I oh, love me too. History. Yeah, and uh, we haven't had the time because we've got to catch a flight to stop by the different historical markers, but the Texas Historical Society has done a fantastic job at recording the, uh, sometimes the hin- histories of the individuals that settled the areas, um, and both the good and the bad, the, the conflicts and, and the great accomplishments of the people that that settled the area. And it's neat if you've got the time to stop by oh, so and yeah. just read about the ranchers. I or really the, wouldn't mind being able to like just take off more than what's needed for the hunt and just kind of kind of like John did just come out here now, I don't want to drive the whole way like John did that's crazy but <laughs> to fly out here and maybe from Dallas to to here just kind of slowly meander through here and explore these places on the way stop at some uh, liquor stores look for some allocated bourbons yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well that's so when I first started doing a couple years ago when I first started really traveling more to hunt I would look up the closest airport to where I wanted to hunt and I would not book airfare out there but that was one of the things is man you would eat up so much of your budget and then coming back from a a Wyoming antelope hunt once um, my flight was delayed my, my commuter flight essentially into Denver was delayed and I missed my flight in Denver and I realized when I looked at the tickets that I could have flown round trip into Denver without my you know, not counting the charge to, to take my gun 
as a pack item, but it was only 60 bucks. And I paid something like $400 for airfare, which means that the last 90 minutes of that trip on the plane, or the last hour of that trip on the plane, plus the layover, cost me $350 or something like that. And then when I realized that, wait a second, once you add in the layover, the flight, the unpacking of your gear and all that, it's still a three hour or four hour idea or you know process that you got to go through. Whereas I could just get off the plane in Dallas or just get off the plane in Denver, jump in a rent a car, and maybe instead of getting to my destination three hours, it might take me four. But I got to experience all this country. Absolutely. And the small towns that really get a flavor for the United States and America and the West in particular. But I do the same things on the East Coast too. Is I just fly into major hubs, jump in a car, and drive the rest. And it's once I learned little things like that, it, it allowed me to experience so much more because it really cut my budget. And and I guess that's also kind of what led to doing things like this is, you know, you can go out and get a hotel room for yourself or you bring some buddies so you got the camaraderie. Now the rental car is only one-third of the expense. You pile into the hotel and that's only one-third of the expense. Yeah. More guys get to enjoy it. Three guys become six guys. Six guys becomes nine guys. And it just it just blossoms, and it's a wonderful experience. I would say I feel like really you could really, honestly, in the amount of time that I had a little less time, but in, in the amount of time that you know the original people that were supposed to go on this trip started the plan, it it really wouldn't be hard for anybody. No, to, other than like maybe your time off work, but I mean you could just take vacation for that if you have it. But anybody to be able to plan this out and make it, it's not like it's some stupid crazy expense if if you plan it out if you have you know the six months to plan it out like we've talked a lot and uh on the other podcasts and stuff about how you can simply do stuff like not buy your breakfast at the gas station every morning or whatever you save 30 bucks a day you know what i mean it's it's not hard to just cut out some simple things and come up with the money or some some things that aren't necessities and come up with the money to to make one of these hunts yeah like every day on this hunt i think we were it was already cooked into the hotel right that we were just grabbing those little sausage biscuits and a coffee or an orange or something like that and i don't know about you man but i don't want to eat a big breakfast and then go lay on the ground or <laughs> sit in the blind and oh. just man skip the breakfast altogether. Um, and then we were so dang busy that lunch was usually a pretty quick affair but we did we did eat some dinners though yeah <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing you don't skip out on there. Yeah, we were hungry by that. But, um, you know, for your audience that might be listening, and, and if they're at all interested in this, you get a group of, of folks together. Um, if you, Whether you want to use a guide service or do it on your own, if it's going to be something like going to, uh, if you all put in and you pull tags, say, for an antelope draw in, in Wyoming, somebody's kind of got to be the scoutmaster, so to speak, mm-hmm. to kind of say, okay, I'm going to help coordinate this. And, but it doesn't take a whole lot of research. You know, you figure out when you want to go. You got to coordinate your times. You got to coordinate your airfare and how you're going to stay. But you can't wait until... You can't wait until October 1st to plan your antelope hunt. Yeah. Right? You can't <laughs> wait, unless you're talking about planning for a full year in advance. You can't wait until December to try to come out and, and shoot case case geese and cranes in west texas Mm -hmm. these are things that you start planning in february and march get your crew together because you got to gather up 
some form of deposit, whether if, if you're going to use an outfitter, they're going to want it. But you got to get some kind of buy-in, right? Guys have got to commit some money to it. Otherwise, it's just the nature of people. We all get busy. We think we want to do things, but it, it kind of remains more of a dream versus a goal or versus Absolutely. something you're actually going to do. So, you know, put it out there. If you if you want eight guys to go, man, you got to put it out to like 20. Yeah. And uh, inevitably, you still end up with people canceling. Absolutely. This time we had two people cancel the night before. Forfeit. That was ridiculous. I don't want to rehash <laughs> that bad medicine, but you get your folks together, get that initial deposit in, and then just stay in touch with people. Try to coordinate so that you're all staying at the same hotel, or if you really want to go hardcore and uh, try to run it out of a truck, you can do that. Uh, or if you're going to drive into a destination, who's going to bring what gear? How are we going to make that work? And then just stay in touch. And the neat thing about budgeting is, like hypothetically on this trip, you made your deposit. And then you got to book your airfare. So you book your airfare. And then as the event's coming on, eventually you got to finish off paying for the guide or coming up with the hotel. But by spacing it into thirds or fourths, if you're going to try to bite off a $1,500 trip or a $1,000 trip, if it comes in $250 increments, it's just easier to swallow. Absolutely. And then when you get out here, it's really no more expensive than if you were staying at home because you're still going to go out and, you know, maybe have a couple cold pops with your buddies. So you're just doing that here. Yeah. But, man, it's the greatest experience on earth. You know, one of the uh, fun parts uh, at the end of the hunt here where our trip is over, we're, we're done uh, bagging everything up, we're sitting back having a, a drink planning uh, the, uh, the dinner for the night. And then uh, you walk in and already talking about the next hunt, where we're gonna go, what we're gonna set up, and, and who's in. Yeah. And uh, you know that's it's important while we're together to make sure that you know, hey, listen, we had a great time this one. When's the next one? Hallelujah. And you build that network like uh, I wish he was here because I think he'd add a lot of depth to the podcast. Uh, my friend, um, and, and, and he is a he is a both of them the two the two gentlemen, and I say that sincerely. Yeah from South Carolina, Webb Sharpia and Roman Hammes, whose families both go back, I don't know, what they say, six or, I mean, Webb's family fled the French yeah. Huguenots. Yeah. They're French Huguenots. Yeah. yeah, flying persecution, or fleeing persecution. Um, you know, I, like I said, I wish those guys were here. Um, and I almost forget where I was going to go with that goofy conversation, but... Um, What was I going to say about them fellas, man? I got so complimentary, yeah. I totally forgot what, I, what the point they of the conversation They were both was. definitely a couple characters that would have just added. Oh. I really wish we would have got so busy. I know what I was going to say. That, so Roman, um, in fact, to give him a nod, Roman's really the reason this trip happened. Uh, I was busy, and all of a sudden he sent me a text like, hey, man, are we going to West Texas? I was like, oh, yeah, I got to get on there. But what I was going to say is that uh, – he came to a couple, and then also, you know, life and family, he's got a couple wonderful young kids. Um, then one year he couldn't come, but that didn't mean I didn't keep inviting him. So when you put these little hunting groups together, there are going to be people that come and people that go. Um, some people do come once, and that's, you know, that's all they wanted to do was once. But I find that most of the time we end up, over a period of years, just getting, you start to see the same cast of characters. And that goes back to that conversation about these uh, these friendships and that, that bond that there's just so few experiences 
especially, and I can't speak for women, and I don't mean anything pejorative about this, but I do know that men really need in their lives, um, in our particular hunts, and I hope nobody's offended by this podcast, because most of us are married, um, we keep it a guy's trip. Um, but I would never, if my wife wanted to do something similar, I would never say no, obviously. Yeah. And I'm, I, admittedly, I'm also blessed with a, my wife, Michelle, is, uh, I'm the harder one to be married to. I, I say that freely. Um, but, you know, if you asked her, I think that she would say that the reason she would like me to come out and do this is um, there's just, just no time and no room to get in trouble. Yeah. Right? This is yeah. clean fun. Yeah. So... I think it's one thing that was kind of crazy to me, and I found it in work, but also more so in, in hunting trips over the years, is it's kind of crazy how you just have such a large, like, I'm 25 and everybody else here is, you know, either. 40s and 50s. Yeah, 40s and 50s. But yeah, yeah, Roman's we, in his 50s, 30s. Roman yeah, Weber in their 30s. Well, yeah. <laughs> There's still, you know, quite an age gap between me and the, the other youngest person, but everybody still connects like that age gap's not even there yeah i don't think of it if anything if i if i can we talked about it a little bit that you know you and i had that one conversation i wanted to be really careful that i didn't want to sound like i was talking down to your lecturing yeah no no no. because you know you're obviously a a a very well put together guy right and for better or worse the only advantage i've had is 25 more years of, of hard knocks so whenever i if we're chatting about stuff, having the ability to say, well, let me try to hopefully flatten your learning curve and yeah. knock some of the rough edges <laughs> off because I've got the scars. Let's see if we can spare you. you know, yeah. here, here's the shortcut. You know, those I are really great appreciate things. that kind of stuff too, though. Well, I, I, oddly enough, I think you're going to find that 25 years from now, when you're the old guy and there's a younger fellow in the room, you're going to realize that. Um, you don't feel any different. Like, yeah. I look in the mirror, and I'm heavier, and I'm grayer, but I don't, between the years, I don't necessarily feel any different than I did when I was 25, with the exception, I guess, what I, what I might say is perspective. I don't think I'm any more intelligent. I've just... Experienced. Yeah, I, I've been yeah. fortunate enough to... Hell, man, i got a bunch of people that I've known during my life that unfortunately didn't make it to 49 yeah um and miss a lot of them dearly um so i guess you should you know if you're approaching that there's a certain amount of blessing there and i, I hope that 40 years from now i'm saying there's a lot of people that didn't make it to 89 um but I, you know it's just the perspective you won't i'm sure at 89 i will still feel 25 yeah oh yeah it's definitely been a an amazing experience it's it's made me want to to get on because I've never you know I've gone to like Georgia and stuff but I've never gone like way out like to Texas to hunt and it's it's I'd say lit a fire under my ass to to really try and strive to be able to do more like this because I don't want you know one day I, I don't want to be you know in my 40s and be like shit I really wish I would have done that stuff and now I can't yeah, I, so here's some more perspective. Um, and, you know, because I guess professionally my background is a financial advisor, and, which it all sounds wonderful at this point, but I, I have no bones in saying that 
starting out as young as I did, I was 22 years old. <laughs> it almost sounds absurd that at 22 years old, I thought that I had the chops to go out and encourage people to save money and talk about finances. Um, it almost sounds ludicrous now. And I guess it was, which is why when I was that young, it was so lean. Um, and I, I don't really regret the fact that I really kept my nose to the grindstone, but I didn't have the perspective. And in my life, I didn't have anybody who was telling me that as important it is to save money and pay down your debts and do all these things that really are the right way to live your life so that it's not painful later, that, you know, it's okay to smell a few roses along the way. And the real cost to you is, for God's sakes, have some discipline. Don't buy a $5 Starbucks coffee. Yeah. You know, give up a couple of Egg McMuffins. And really, that's what's going to allow you to go hunting. And uh, and I just didn't do those things. I didn't, I mean, I was always hunting. And always, I, I, was, I spent a long time doing a lot of spearfishing and diving. That was my passion. But I didn't start seeing the world and started to experience the world through trips like these, which I'm just consumed with now, until I was in my late 30s. And I guess that's now late 40s. I guess that I didn't wait too long. Yeah. But those trips in my late 30s feel like they happened yesterday. Yeah. And I do regret that I didn't start at 25. So for your younger audience, this is more a matter of will and discipline. I'm going to go and I'm, I'm willing to pay the cost that it's going to take to go. And I don't mean cost in terms of money. That is a cost. But making sure that you are doing the things so that it's fair to your family, fair to your children, fair to your employer. And all that really takes is just advanced warning and plenty of communication. And, uh, and don't abuse it. Absolutely. And you can do it. You know, from uh, a first-time hunter's perspective, I didn't grow up. My parents weren't hunters. My parents weren't uh, uh, people that, you know, did much uh, in the sense of that uh, outdoor activities of fishing or anything like that. Um, but I grew up with some friends who hunted. And I always wanted to go, and I, I never got the opportunity, uh, you know. So uh, finally, I uh, stumbled across Jim here, and uh, the hunt he was talking about we did in Lakeland uh, a couple weeks ago. I think what was it? You had to pay fifteen, twenty dollars to go out on that public land and and hunt. I think was the, the oh, that's right. There fee. was a quota permit. Yeah, yeah, just a just a couple dollars. Um, but for me, that was important to go on that before I came out to this, you know, hunt because the end of the day you don't want to show up and you know be your first experience you just put you know some money some it's it's not cheap it's not expensive to get out here but if you do it right like Jim's saying it's it's very affordable um this is much cheaper than my average vacation that I go on you know I I travel a lot I take a lot of vacations and this is about a third of the cost of what I'd typically pay for a vacation so but in that sense if you're a first-time hunter like me and you're thinking about you want to go out and hunt Go buy yourself a cheap shotgun. You know, these guys are all hunting, and I showed up with a uh, Maverick 88, and, uh, you know, it's a pump-action shotgun. Took the birds out the same as a $2,000 uh, Bernelia uh, took it out of the sky. Um, but, you know, you don't have to jump in and buy the hundreds of dollars in gear, and one of the guys had jeans and a dark-colored shirt on while we are hunting because you're sitting under a, uh, a ghillie suit provided by the outfitter. So... If you are a first-time hunter, you're thinking about getting into it, 
try something like uh, a simple dove hunt or uh, you know go out and see if you even enjoy being in the outdoors like that in the first place yeah. uh, you don't have to have all the crazy gear um, just get yourself a two three hundred dollar shotgun go to your local pawn shop and find a shotgun in a cheap uh, price range and um, you know it's a good way to start as you're hunting now five years ten years down the road you know you'll acquire things as you're traveling you you know this trip I didn't I was lucky my birthday was just a month ago and uh, my wife asked me what I want for my birthday and I said you know some uh, camouflage wouldn't be bad that's that's how little hunting I've done in my life for outdoors I didn't even own any camouflage so she bought me a decent little uh, camouflage setup to keep me warm in the cold weather and um, you know those those little things come along and then we're out here I saw a little camouflage hat for 10 bucks I picked up and some gloves um, you know, so you don't need all the fancy gear and fancy equipment to get out there. Get a shotgun. Get you find a, a public land hunt. Get on uh, BHA. BHA. Backcountryhunters.org. Yeah, backcountryhunters.org. Check out uh, some of the public land hunts that they uh, promote on there. Meet up with uh, myself, Jim, and Jordan on some of these hunts. Uh, feel free to reach out on them, and uh, on the website you can get Jim's email there he's a wealth of knowledge thank you and uh, has definitely made this uh, experience a lot easier on me because not knowing anything to knowing what I know now I, I feel like I'm a, uh, a more seasoned hunter uh, than before I, I joined I, I definitely feel more comfortable going out you know if there was uh, something put together by a couple of my buddies I, I wouldn't be shy to go out with them now I, I would be you know, all in on it, having the experiences I've had. So the uh, the the R3 chairman Adam Steele, who's part of the, the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers board uh, in Florida, is probably doing backflips. Um, that that's his passion is getting people out there. So thank you for the endorsement. And if while we're plugging Backcountry Hunters and Anglers um, in Florida, uh, we've got a little over 400 members, and what we primarily do is advocate for public land, um, and and through that. In some cases, getting into water issues, or, or say weighing in on, on, on hopefully getting our, getting our, we were successful in, in being a part of the effort to keep hunting as part of our bear management plan plan in Florida. Hopefully, we'll be instrumental in getting that raised from a quota of zero to some harvestable amount to help keep our bear population healthy and in check. Those are the kind of things that we do. But from an R3 perspective, to be able to go out and recruit new hunters, I'd encourage everybody to go out and take a look at, again, it's bha.org, backcountryhuntersandanglers.org. Go to the events page. You'll see a whole bunch of pins that are in the uh, down in Florida. And most of those are small game hunts where you can come out. We might be pursuing squirrels or rabbits or quail or doves, depending on the season and the location. Um, but if you reach out to me or another volunteer or just use our Facebook page, which you should be able to find through Florida Chapter Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, just ask a question. Somebody will reach out to you. I think you'll find that there will be quite a bit of support of people that are willing to answer your questions, make you feel comfortable, and just get you out in the woods. Um, if you're a hunter that's new to the state, and just wants to help get the lay of the land, I remember it being difficult to sometimes find the motivation to just get out there and self-start. Well, 
BHA give you all the motivation that you want. And uh, having, I guess, I don't know if partner is the right word, but certainly it is a yeah. partnership with the guys at places like Under Hunting Under Pressure Podcast. Uh, under under Pressure Outdoors. Thank yeah. you, sir. My <laughs> goodness, I just butchered your podcast. I mean, no, throw, throw it out of the studio here. Yeah. Um, the synergy is what we need in the space. You know, in Florida, we got give or take 21, 22 million people. But I think if you go and look at the demographics, we sell just under 200,000 individual hunting licenses a year. That's only 1% of the population. We need that synergy um, to continue to do what we do. Absolutely. And it's also so vital, as I'm, as I'm sure a lot of people that are listening are aware, to drive the, reserva- drive the revenue to conservation uh, through the Pittman Robertson Act and through the Dingle Johnson Act on fishing equipment, um, just got to get folks out. And man, what a wonderful experience! So many people are tied up in front of their computers. Let's get out there and you know wear some boots out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that was, I think, for me, I don't know what it. I feel like it's for anybody that's that that gets involved into hunting. But for me, especially, it's like, I guess I could say like a seasoned hunter. I genuinely enjoy, like, I got just as much enjoyment out of myself being able to come out here, and I, I even learned a lot of stuff coming out here. Yeah. But to be able to see, like, Adam just be so on fire for it, and it, you know what I mean? Just to see new people get into it like that, I, I love that. That just heats me up. It's... I can't really put a finger on why I enjoy advocating for the outdoors or reaching out to new people and trying to help them get that experience. Um, I spent a fair amount of time thinking of it and I, and I know on some level there is a, a, a self-interest. So I, I guess it's as simple as um, we all desire to feel like our lives have meaning and purpose or I don't know altruism <laughs> you know that I guess if I'm doing it because I like to feel good for me maybe that's technically not altruistic but um, it's just been a space that I felt very comfortable had some limited success in, in getting people outdoors it's always nice to have somebody say thank you Um, but I would encourage more I think sometimes hunters get cast as being clannish or standoffish maybe that's because in some aspects of our sport it's difficult to do a group white-tailed deer hunt yeah you know dog hunting you can do it that way and there are some states where they allow deer drives but for the most part it's something that's solitary um, I certainly understand why, given our continually, continually decreasing um, points of access for, say, waterfowl hunting, why hunters are pretty reserved about showing new people places to hunt. Because even though there's really not that many of us, in the state of Florida, we're under such constant threat of losing those spaces to development that 
just, we just don't want to divulge where to go. Yeah. And, and by the way, I want to make sure that I'm not uh, I'm not bashing development. I understand that people want to come to Florida. I understand that um, people should have the rights to do with their land as they please. <clears throat> there certainly needs to be some limits on that, but I guess this is my own personal this is my own personal opinion. I'm not speaking for BHA or anybody else, but I got no problem with development, but I don't think we necessarily need to develop down to the waterline. Why no. can't we have 500 foot, frankly, if it was up to me, 500 yard, but why can't we have larger buffer zones between the water and the actual development to provide that habitat for so many species to allow those of us that enjoy using the water space for a handful of days during the year to be able to do so without being harassed uh, and also without causing discomfort to homeowners in the area. I, I, I don't I'm just see, vibing yeah. now. Yeah. No, I, I don't I, see any reason why why people can't and I, I don't know, maybe it's just the, I don't want to say the greediness of some people, but, but why people can't work together so that everybody can be, you know, like included. And like you said, if, you know, the development, if you have that buffer, those people can still have their home, their waterfront houses. That doesn't mean that they can't take their dock. You know, there's no reason they can't have a dock out there, but to have that house, you know, you still get your house and your waterfront property and people that enjoy waterfowl hunting or even fishing. Because a lot of the times people build houses around the water and they take all the habitat for fish away right there because they want their shoreline perfectly clean. Um, why it can't just be shared between the two. I agree. I I suppose that everybody would love to have that manicured beach behind their house, but I, it, right, everybody's selfish until it's you. Yeah. Right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. No, um, that's, that's very true. Yeah, somebody, if you're the guy that wants the manicured beach and I'm the guy that wants that thing to you know, look like it did in 1750, I'm the selfish one. So, uh, I'm a man full of hypocrisies. And anybody that knows me well certainly knows that I am very much willing to take a strong opinion. I'd like to think that I can be moved in my opinions, though it's likely not going to be just based on an emotional response. But I do when I find myself getting wound up in conversations like these with somebody who is maybe a couple degrees different or even entirely opposed, I try to take a minute to see where they're coming from. And, uh, or, or I don't always succeed at this, but try to diffuse that situation so that we can try to figure out, let's at least try to figure out if there's any common ground, where their common ground is, and see what we can agree about and focus on trying to deepen those relationships and on those points and, and, and steer away from the things that we don't agree about. And I think that's something that's really going to be important moving forward in the sportsman community. Absolutely. Just, I'm not, I don't want to take any particular issue, but you see it out there where um, two, three folks are all chatting and on one particular issue, boy, they're all in lockstep. And then somebody says, I don't like pears. And the other two are looking at that fellow and says, oh, my God, you don't like pears? Yeah. Well, and everything you stand for is, yeah, yeah. You know, is blasphemy. Yeah. Right? And you're like, you, 
you just needed that guy on this other issue yeah. and thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. But now, you know, it's no, you know, you, you're allowed to have those. You have to, man. That's our constitutional right. Yeah, it is, and it's great as we're all agreeing. And, 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 Jordan, I'm sure that if you and I continue to hunt together and get together and, and do things or build wood duck boxes together, man, we're going to stumble on some things where it's going to be like, what do you mean you don't like pears? Yeah. Oranges are the way to go. You know, yeah. it's just, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and, and Christ, just let's focus on the eighty or ninety percent, not on the ten. Yeah. Well, we are about an hour and one minute into the podcast here, so we're gonna go ahead and kind of start to wind it down. Doesn't feel like it's been an hour, but uh, whole trip's been like that. Yeah, yeah, it has. Um. Once we kind of get near the end of our podcast here, we normally do a tip of the week. So I don't really have either one. If you have a tip of the week, I I don't have my tip of the week yet. I can tell you that. When you're uh, breaking your uh, birds down or your any meat that you're breaking down, always make sure to have the right size fillet knife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You definitely, yeah. you know, we I I've had a fillet knife. I, I grew up fishing. And uh, I brought the only fillet knife uh, that I have with me. It's about an eight-inch blade, and it is entirely too big to break down any of the birds that uh, uh, we had. But we used it the first day, and the next day we went out and purchased a four-inch blade. And uh, you know, the amount of meat difference in my ability to break the animal down was a night and day difference. It it made me into a uh, uh, a decent, I won't say good, because some of these guys, I don't think there was an ounce of meat left on the yeah. bone. Um, it made me into a decent uh, filleter, I guess, you, you, whatever you yeah. would call it. A you bird can use breaker. the term butcher. Bird, yeah. bird breaker downer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and I would say my other tip of the day that I would like to add is don't be afraid to dive in there and, and just do it and give it a shot. Uh, you know, whether it's, uh, no pun intended. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, if, if you're interested in hunting as a first-time hunter, uh, great. If you've never broken a bird a bird down before and you've always paid the guide to do it, you know, uh, uh, if you have somebody there that can walk you through the simple way to do it, or heck, watch a YouTube video today. Um, and it's so simple. I was really amazed after it being shown just one time. I got in there and started doing it. The next bird I did was better, and by the end of the trip, I... Uh, plucking geese. I was yeah. plucking geese. Yeah, plucked a whole entire goose. Yep, so that's my that's my add to the tip. Jim, you got anything to throw in there? Um, I guess, I always hate to say, like, from the experience side of the equation. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, one of the things that, and I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, that I didn't think to really emphasize was making sure that if you have newer hunters or hunters that maybe don't get out as often as uh, some other guys do before the trip if you're a more experienced fellow or if you're kind of taking the position to organize it make sure that everybody has actually taken the firearm that they're going to use on the trip to the range the skeet field out in the woods and used it that they're comfortable they're familiar with it that the chokes that they bring actually fit in the gun uh, that the plug that is required for the hunt is in the gun um, and take the time maybe to remind people to have all of the what sometimes seems like obvious you know, yeah. less important details <laughs> like 
actual copies of your hunting license, your duck stamp, uh, your hunter safety card, because if the if the game warden comes along um, yeah. and they ask to see those things, they can become challenging when you don't have them readily available. So yeah. uh, encouraging the maybe the more experienced fella to pay attention to the details to make sure that the less experienced guys have the optimal fun time. You know, the uh, adding on just to that little piece there, it's it, you think you may be in an area where the game warden may not show up. I, I don't have to worry about it. It just takes one person to call and, you know, it's say, and say, hey, uh, there's some hunters out here and uh, just want to make sure they're legal. And the game warden's more than happy to get off his uh, route he's on and come over and check everything out, make sure you're good. That's their job. And, you know, you can wind yourself in a world of hurt if, you, uh, if you're not up on everything that's supposed to be uh, correct. Yeah, I mean, it, I, it came down to even our, our guide didn't even have all of his uh, paper copies of what, you know, the game warden ended up having to look up what the guide had. So... It doesn't take much to to just kind of make sure. And I was like, I didn't even have my my paper copy of my that hadn't been mailed to me yet, but I hadn't had my paper copy of my duck stamp. Fortunately, I was able to go back to the truck and, and pull it up. But it it doesn't well, take a lot just to ensure that. I wasn't actually going to get into the fact that we had a visit from a game warden <laughs> on private land because yeah. somebody had called. Yeah. But uh, I. I, I didn't really agree with his timing to wander into the middle of our hunt and decide no. to run us through, you know, a six sigma drill about the fine, you know. But nonetheless, you know, I, I learned that you just can't take anything for granted. Most of our guys did everything they needed. We were all able to pull up what we needed, but you know, just just be prepared. You know, Boy Scouts talk about that, right? Be prepared yeah. for what? Be prepared for everything. Yeah, if you're on a hunt, have your toys with you for goodness' sake. Just be ready to go. And uh, make sure you got your plug-in. Yeah. I don't know. Jim stole mine. I got to kind of come up with something on the fly here. Oops. Sorry. No, you're good. But, uh... Vac sealer. Vac sealer. Oh, yeah. The vacuum sealer. Man, that that was a... Get yourself a vacuum sealer if you don't have game one. Game changer. Yeah. That was a massive game changer for us. We, uh... We were actually able to, we're coming home with frozen vacuum sealed meat. That, I mean, we get home and all we gotta do is throw it in the freezer. There's, you know, you don't have to worry about doing all the process, like cleaning it and everything. When you get home, you can literally just get home, get your stuff put away, throw your meat in the freezer, and you're done with it. Yeah, make sure everybody's got a flay knife or whatever gear you need. Everybody's got a pair of game shears. Everybody's got gloves if you need them. So that every anybody can jump in and take over during any part of the process to keep the machine running. Get your get your game processed quickly and put away. Yeah, that was an awesome. All right, well, that'll be the end of the podcast. There, we appreciate you joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for having us.